following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Well, it won't take, take you but a second to look at the page and guess who we're talking about. Jehoshaphat. No, I'm just kidding. It's James. Um... I put James on there 37 times, so I figured you would kind of get a clue really, really quick. Well, you know, we changed our mind right right quick. Uh, here's the thing. I, I, James is a tough name to be named in the Bible. Uh, I've lifted, listed some spaces there at the top where you can fill in the Jameses in the Bible. Um, there's, there's James, the brother of John, who was a disciple. Okay, this is the sons of Zebedee, James and John, Peter, James, and John. <clears throat> these uh, the, the three guys hanging out with Jesus all the time, that's not the James we're talking about. Okay, so you got Peter, James, and John, disciple, not him. you got J- James, the son of Alphaeus, also a disciple, also one of the 12. That's not who we're talking about. That's, that's not the James we're talking about. Uh, you've got James, who's the father of the apostle Jude in the Bible. Not really a very well-known guy. But you've got James, who's the father of the Apostle Jude. That's not who we're talking about. You've got a possible James. Now, this one is, is pretty, pretty solid, but there's a little bit of a question mark. All we know is James, whose mother is Mary. So evidently, there was a very uncreative naming process back in that day because every mom seemed to be Mary and every son seemed to be James. There was a lot of that going around, okay? So we know that there was a a James whose mother is Mary. And then we come to James who's the brother of Jesus. And that's the James that we're talking about today. And I just want you to take that in for a second because what, what really intrigues me about James is that he grew up as the brother of Jesus. He grew up in that home. He grew up um, seeing and watching things that I can't even imagine seeing and watching. So you've got those five guys. You've got James, brother of John. You've got James, son of Alphaeus. You've got James, uh, the father of the apostle Jude. You've got James, whose mother is Mary. And you've got James, the brother of Jesus. And it's number five that we're really looking at. So I want to encourage you to turn to the book of James, thank you very much. That was a tough one right there, okay? Turn to the book of James because I want to hear from this guy. Now, it's crazy how often this book gets attributed to James, the brother of John, who was a disciple, Peter, James, and John. Now, we're going we're gonna to find this out. I'm going to kind of jump ahead a little bit. There's, there's a very significant reason why James could not have written this book. He got run through with a sword. That's it. He got killed. It's really hard to write a book when you're dead. Okay? And so James, if you've forgotten, James and John, the brother, the sons of Zebedee, <clears throat> both disciples. James was the first of the 12 to be martyred. Okay? John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Okay? Was the last to die. So you got two brothers, and they were the bookends of the disciples as far as, as their death. So James, the brother of John, had already been killed, so we know that he didn't write this book. So we believe, and, and very soundly, that James, the brother of Jesus, is actually the one that wrote this book. I'm going to ask you to turn to chapter 4. Well, let me, before we do that, let me ask you this. 
I want you to look real quick and, and just, there's a lot of passages in James that just jump out at you. You look and go, oh, I forgot that was in James. Oh, that's a really good one. So I want you to look for a second and just what are some of the passages in James that just jump out at you and go, you know, that, that, that passage means a lot to me. That scripture means a lot to me. Is there anything in here you see, James 1, James 2? Okay, what's that? That's right, that's right. James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's right, it's great. What else? James 1, 2. Yes. Faith without works is dead. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. What else? Mm-hmm. Great. That's, that's a big one, isn't it? Anything? Three fives. Mm-hmm. Great picture, isn't it? What else? Anything else? When we hear one time, it's kind of tucked in here, 219, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. There's, there's, there's a lot of good, um, uh, James 122, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Absolutely. James got a lot of good stuff in here, doesn't he? James got some good things tucked in here. I want to go to James chapter 4, and I want to read a passage here. Well, here's what I want to do in the time that we have. I want to kind of go over a little bit of who James was in his life, uh, what what happened to him, because I want to get a picture of, of who he is, and I want to use this passage to kind of pull out some things. So, James chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. This is a great way to start a a passage. Adulteresses, mercy. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit he has caused to live in us yearns jealously? You write in your Bible, and I know some, some do and some don't. I would underline that yearns jealously verse 6 but he gives greater grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble therefore submit to god but resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands sinners and purify your hearts double-minded people be miserable and mourn and weep your laughter must change to mourning and your joy to sorrow Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Well, you know, one of the things we know from Scripture, or we we understand that Scripture uh, is God-breathed, that we don't read a Bible that was written by man. And yet, at the same time, God has the ability to use the experiences, the passions, the giftings, the thoughts, the beliefs of those who were writing 
within what he's saying. In other words, we don't have 66 books written by robots. This wasn't dictation, and yet it was dictation. It's that great coming together of the Holy Spirit within man. Scripture is God-breathed, and so we believe that it is holy. It is from the Lord, and yet there is an element of, and you see this a lot in Paul's writings, Paulness comes out in the writing. There's a, a personality that God still allows to come through, which is an amazing thing. And so in James, this isn't James just saying, okay, God, tell me what to say. But God, through the ent- entirety of James' life, is speaking in this passage. So let's look at who James is a little bit just to see who he is. In Matthew 13, we see that James was most likely the oldest sibling, at least the oldest boy in the family after Jesus. Jesus was first, okay? Then you've got the listing. Now, now the daughters weren't always listed, so there may have been a, a, a sister that was older than him, but at least among the brothers, he was most likely the oldest. So think about that for a second. Take that in for a second. Your big brother next in line is Jesus. No pressure there, right? Sure, grades were pretty good. And do grades, but if they did grades, I mean, Jesus probably did pretty good. You know what I'm talking about? He kind of set the bar high. I don't know if Mary and Joseph ever said it, but I would have if I would have been them. Jesus never does that. I don't know what the problem is, James. You never see Jesus pulling that stuff. I don't know what. I don't know why you can't do. Like, I don't know why you can't be like your brother. I mean, no pressure. I mean, think about it. Wow, what a, what a hard place to be. John 7 leads us to believe that very likely throughout his childhood, John was never a believer in who Jesus was as God. That James who lived in the same house, and sometimes you can be so close to something, it's so hard to see. That James living in the same house could not come to the point of saying, yes, you are Lord. In Mark 3, Mary and her boys come to see Jesus, and they say, hey, your family is here. And what does Jesus say? These are my family. These are my brothers. These are my mother. He puts spiritual over the physical. My spiritual family over my physical family in that sense. And in a way, he rejects James. In uh, throughout the final days of Jesus' life, the Last Supper, the Garden, the Cross, those days that we see, <clears throat> James is suspiciously absent. We don't see him in those scriptures. We don't see him in that place. Now, let me tell you, I believe, and, and, and I think you would probably agree, he probably wasn't very far because Jesus is still his brother. He certainly knew, I'm sure. He certainly knew everything that was going on. He watched these three years of Jesus' ministry. He, he didn't buy into it, if you will. He goes, that's my brother. I, that's hard to believe. And so when the cross comes, we don't hear what James was thinking. We don't hear what James was doing. But we believe he was probably around. Acts 1.14, he's listed now as a follower. So at some point between the resurrection and this point in Acts, James has now become a believer. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, it gives us a glimpse into that. It says, Paul, uh, Paul tells us there that Jesus appeared to James after the resurrection. That one of the people that Jesus went to is he went to James and said, all right, brother, how about now? James went, okay, yeah, I, I got you. I'm good now. I get it. But it took him a very long time. I mean, I, and I don't want us to move too quickly past that. That James did not get and understand and believe in the true identity of Christ, even though he knew him from his birth until after the resurrection. Don't ever give up on anybody. Don't ever give up on anybody. He finally came and understood it. In the book of Acts, we see James working alongside Peter as a leader of the church in Jerusalem. When he's in, man, he's in. In Acts 12, 17, he takes over leadership from Peter. In Galatians 2, 9, Paul calls him a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Now, again, James, the son of Zebedee, James, the brother of John, has already been killed at this point. So we know in this passage he's not talking about that James, so he must be talking about this James. Throughout Galatians, he is known as this. You ready? This is a great, great phrase to be called. James, the Lord's brother. Man, how's that? That'd be pretty neat, wouldn't it? James, the Lord's brother. But probably if there's one passage that I think captures this more than anything is James 1.1. A man who grew up with Jesus, lived with Jesus, saw the things of Jesus, rejected many, many times the things of Jesus, says and introduces himself this way. and says, this is who I am. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the transformation that's taking place in James? He went from being the brother to being the slave. So I want us to look at some lessons here, just from uh, James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. First of all, it tells us this, that friendship with God is a choice. Friendship with God is a choice. It's mutually exclusive. There's a choice between being friends with God and a choice of being friends with the world. Now, what do we want to do? We want to straddle that, don't we? I want to have one foot over here, and I want to be a man of God, but I have one foot over here, and I want to do the things that I want to do. On one hand, God is leading me, and he is my master, and he's telling me what to do. But on the other hand, I really want to be in this place where I'm in charge. But the Bible tells us it's an actual choice. You've got to go one way or another. You can't be wet and dry, right? We learned that this week, all right? You're going to be one or you're going to be the other. You can't be alive and dead, regardless of what Princess Bride says. He was mostly dead, okay? Some of you got that, thank you. All right, but he, you're either dead or you're alive. It's mutually exclusive. And so the choice here is one in that we have to decide who we're going to be friends with. Now, I want you to think about the fact that James faced this decision day after day after day growing up. As he got a little older, I wonder how James interpreted uh, Luke chapter 2 where Jesus goes to the temple at the age 12. And Mary and Joseph come home and say, oh, we had a little situation in Jerusalem. We couldn't find Jesus for three days. Now, James at that point, being younger, would not have gone. More than likely, he was still back at home, not old enough to go to the temple. And I wonder how he interpreted that. 
Did he go, oh, see, see, okay, he's not as good as you think he is. And Mary says, I'm sorry, he's going to grow in stature and wisdom with God and man. You know, she's pulling out scripture on him. In those days, James had to choose. Do I believe that my brother is God? Do I choose to make myself a slave to him? Or do I choose to let him just be my brother? But he says here in verse 4, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? If you choose the world by default, you are rejecting God. If you choose the world by default, you are rejecting God. We can't have our foot in both worlds. Number two, by God's grace, he gives us multiple chances to choose. By God's grace, he gives us multiple chances to choose. Do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit he has called to live in us yearns jealously, but he gives us, I love this, greater grace. God is jealous. Does that sound weird to you when you read that? It always sounds weird to me in Scripture when I hear uh, God being attributed with something that, that seems very negative. God is jealous. You know, what does God have to be jealous of? The King James says it even stronger. King James says, he lusteth after us. You don't hear that word thrown in with God very often, do you? God's lusting now? He lusteth after us. We need to understand what that means. God is jealous in a way that is completely unselfish. Now, when we're jealous, I'll I'll speak for me. When I'm jealous, I tend to be jealous in in a selfish way. Somebody has something I don't have. Or I think somebody might get something I don't have. I'm jealous of what somebody else has. It's very selfish. God is jealous in an unselfish way. I want to give you a picture because I think this is one of those things that's kind of hard to wrap our minds around one time or or sometimes. I want to give you a picture, and you all have seen this before. Uh, You've heard stories. We have great people in our church who work in ministry that deal with those who have been trafficked. And you hear the insane stories of the things that happens to people that Houston is as one of the largest hubs in the world of, of human trafficking. Are you jealous for those who have been trafficked to find dignity? Do you lust after those people finding dignity? After the way they've been treated, is there something inside of you that rises up and says, I I can't stand that. They deserve better than that. I want something much, much more for them. So much more that I, it's such a passion that I lust after, I'm jealous for the dignity that I believe that they deserve. I think then we're starting to approach the jealousy of God. Where God says, I want to give you greater grace because I want so much for you to experience this righteousness that I have worked so hard to give you. That I'm lusting after the opportunity for you to experience righteousness. That God is so passionate about us experiencing this reconciliation with him that he's jealous for us. And to that end, he gives a greater grace. Greater than what? Well, greater than our turning from our sin. 
greater than turning from him. He doesn't just seek after us one time or ten times, but he will come time after time after time after time, but not forever. There will be a time that is the last time that God seeks us. We just don't know when that's going to be. We're going to get to this here in a second. I'll jump a little bit ahead, but I know we're, we're short on time. Even as believers, he gives us greater grace to turn back to him, to turn to him, time after time after time. It's a grace that we need. James must have rejected the deity of Christ many, many times in his life. But after the resurrection, Christ went back to him one more time and said, how about now, James? And James said, okay. The greater grace of Christ was powerful. Number three, the influence of the enemy must be rejected to choose or draw near to God. Now, this sounds a lot like number one, and it is. God gives, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Romans 3, 10, and 11 tells us there's no one righteous. There's no one who seeks God. Well, then we're in trouble. If, if Romans 3, 11 is true, there's no one who seeks God. That means that you and I have never sought God in our life. And I believe that to be true. I believe that we can only respond to the seeking of God for us. That God draws us, and we either respond or we reject him. Every time, you know, there's been times you go, you know, I just, I just really want the Lord right now. God just captured my heart in a, in a service or in a talk or in a devotion, a time with the Lord, whatever. And all of a sudden, you just feel God in that moment, and you go, I'm just going to seek after God. No, you're not. You're just responding to the seeking that he's already put in your heart. God seeks after us. The resurrection of Christ drew James in a way that he couldn't reject anymore. There was a moment there where he was drawn in. Playing with sin is not choosing God. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, but resist the devil. Again, it goes back to that thing where as men, I think especially, there's a part of us where we really want to straddle this thing and we want to say, God, I'm going to, I'm going to really give in to you here, but I'm going to resist you and choose the world here. And in that moment, we're not choosing God. And my favorite quote, this has stuck with me for years and years. I, I wasn't a member of his, this is probably 15 years ago or more. I was sitting in the worship center. I can tell you where I was. I was sitting, if you're standing on the stage, I was up in the balcony on the right. Houston Project, July. Hot. It was awful. Okay? About 50 degrees in the church, but it was hot outside, okay? And Beth Moore is speaking. And she said this phrase, and I'll never forget it. This is one of the most foundational discipleship phrases I've ever heard. You ready? This is deep. You ready for it? Okay. If you feed it, it will grow. If you starve it, it'll die. That was it. If you feed it, it will grow. If you starve it, it will die. Every time you and I respond to the Lord and we feed the Spirit of God in our life, it grows. 
Now, we have everything of the Lord we're ever going to have. God's not holding back on us. We don't have 90%, now we're going to 100%. We have all of the Lord, but the impact and the influence of, of that in our life grows right there every time that we do that. Every time we reject God, we restrict the Spirit of God in our life, we starve it, it shrinks. If you feed it, it will grow. If you starve it, it will die. So I just ask you, what's the Spirit of God look like in your life? What's the Spirit of God look like in my life? Am I feeding it so it will grow? Am I starving it and it dies? You know, we talk about the struggle of men with pornography. Guys, I got to tell you, pornography starves the Holy Spirit. Starves it. And then we wonder why we're not, we're not responding to God. We wonder why we sit in a service and go, I don't know, it just didn't do anything for me today. Well, maybe the Holy Spirit has been shrunk so much, the Holy Spirit has just been restricted so much in your life, you've starved it so much that it's just barely hanging on. We need to feed it so it will grow. Number four, grieving has a way of humbling us. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter must be changed to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Very quickly, I don't know what James thought when he stood nearby or at least heard, but I think he was, I just, this is gospel according to Doug here, but I, I think he was standing nearby when Jesus was hung on a cross. And I think he looked at the cross as a brother. And regardless of everything that had happened in his life and whatever jealousy he had had for his brother and whatever he thought of how hard it was to live up to a big brother who was the savior of the world and all that, I think that in that moment he wept. And I think he mourned and I think he grieved. And I think God used that. And he humbled him. Pastor Greg said last Sunday, pride is based on false security. Pride is based on false security. Humility is the soil of good character. There's one thing I think we as men need to do. It's this. We need to resist pride with everything in us. Men of humility are men God can use. Look at the life of James. When he turned to Christ in humility and said, all right, you're my big brother, but I am now your slave. You are my Lord and you are my king, and I receive and accept everything you've said. He began to be used and became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James' pride was that of a brother, but his humility was that of a slave. Okay? Now, I don't know exactly. I'm, are we already past our time? Are we, are we okay? All right, here's what I want you to do around your table. I know I kind of walked through that pretty quickly because I want to give you some time here. I want you to answer two and a half questions, okay? I say a half because one's kind of tied to the second. The first one is this. I want you to talk around your table about the life of James. What is it in there, growing up with Jesus, rejecting Jesus, coming to Christ after the resurrection, leading the church in Jerusalem, becoming a pillar of the church? What is that in there that intrigues you or just kind of captures you? What, what is it about the life of James that maybe just, just intrigues you or captures you? That's the first question. Second question is this. Of the four things that we talked about, what was significant to you? 
of the four things that we listed there, those four lessons, what was significant to you? And here's the half. And really, it's the hardest part of it. What are you going to do about it? It's one thing to go, yeah, boy, that number three, I got me. I have a pride thing. Okay, but what are you going to do about it? If we walk out of here and we don't do anything, we didn't do anything. Okay? So what in the life of James captured you? What of the four things we talked about captured you? And what are you going to do about it? Okay? Ready, set, go. We are a chosen generation. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Garden Room of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. Have a great day.